This is a one and all media podcast. Today. 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 With Jeff Fines. We are taking the gospel to the world. Pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. One truth that will be delivered in love and compassion, connecting every one person to all that God has promised them. Today. Today. Today with Jeff Fines. Hey there, my name is Aaron, and welcome back to Today with Jeff Fines. We're about to hear the remainder of this message. Luke 2 from verse 1 is typically a verse that we hear around Christmas time. It's the story of Jesus' birth, but as Pastor Jeff makes his way through the big picture of the Bible in our series titled The Story, we're now in the New Testament, so we're going to look at this story of baby Jesus, even though it's not Christmas. We're going to look at how Jesus grows up to be the world's sacrifice, ultimately restoring the relationship between us and his Father in heaven. Here's Pastor Jeff, starting in Luke chapter 2, picking up in verse 10. In this narrative, it's what happens in verse 10. The angel says, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. So when God, it's, it's, not, it's not good advice. You got that, right? Jesus isn't just another sage or guru or wise man to show you the way or give you a truth or show you the way toward life. We love using this graph. And if you want to know the distinction between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the Old Testament shows you that we're separated from God because of our sin. The New Testament shows you God made a way to cross over. Even in this narrative of the birth story, the narrator's trying to show you and me something very, very important that doesn't happen very often in human history. And that is something that's already been done for us. That is, he didn't come to give you the key. He is the key. He didn't come to give you the code. He is the code. He didn't come to show you a way. He is the way. He didn't come to give you a truth. He is the truth. By Christ, stripes are healed. By him, you cross over into intimacy and relationship. Now, that's why some people get upset when Christians say Christianity is exclusive. Because Jesus says, look, there's only one way to bridge the gap between God and man. His sin's got to be atoned for. And there's only one in human history that's died and atoned for your sin. Every other major religious system is about effort. But before you think that his exclusivity is exclusive, let me go on and say it again. He may be exclusive, but he's the most inclusive exclusivist you'll ever find. Look at what happens next. This is in verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. I love that part of the story because this. He shows up to the shepherds. Do you know what a shepherd is? It is the lowest, worst occupation in human history. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's this one occasion where Joseph tells his brothers, hey, when Pharaoh asks you what you do, tell him you're shepherds, and he'll give you that nice land way outside from the city. They don't want shepherds anywhere near the city because shepherds stink, man. They're the lowest of the low in society. They really are. I lived with a shepherd for 10 days in New Zealand when we worked and did ministry there. Folks, sheep aren't these fuzzy little nice creatures that you see. These things are ugly. Let me tell you, I'm going to say this as nice as I can. Oftentimes, the inwards of a sheep will come outwards. 
Really. And the shepherd has to shove them back in. Now you think about that. That's grotesque. And I don't know how else to say this, but the way the sheep discards the excrement without actually leaving it behind is one of the nastiest things I've ever seen in my life. These are nasty, nasty creatures. And yet here are the shepherds, smelly men, not the prince, but the paupers. And the angel chooses to show up to the shepherds. Why? It's all a setup. All of it. Listen, I was at a Christmas party once and people asked me, uh, what member uh, or actor or actress in a Christmas movie would best represent your family? This was a game we were playing. And we started going around the room and the first guy said, well, I think George Bailey from It's a Wonderful Life. You know, my family's honest. Uh, there's great character and integrity and sacrifice in my family. And I thought, you're right. <laughs> the next guy says, well, if I have to ch- choose one, I'll choose Bing Crosby, Bob Wallace and White Christmas, talented, forgiving, kind and considerate. And I'm, I'm about to throw up over here. And the, next guy, the next guy chooses one of my, actually, this is my favorite Christmas movie now, A Miracle on 34th Street with Dylan McDermott. He says that he's patient, he's loyal, he's sacrificial. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, what do I do here? Do I, I mean, I'm a pastor. I can't lie. Well, I can, but I shouldn't. And I, I said, if I'm honest, if I'm honest, I told the guys, and I did, I was, you'd be proud of me. I said, if I'm honest, if you want somebody that represents my family, it's Eddie <laughs> from Christmas Vacation, who's awkward, mentally challenged, uncouth, and entitled. Here, that's, that's my family. Here, here, here's the deal. In the first century, genealogies were always monkeyed with because unless you came from good stock, there's no way you're going to rise to the top. And so here's what happens. Herod the Great wasn't so great. He purged all the bad names from his genealogy so he could climb the ladder. It's all a setup. Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospel writers, don't do, they do the opposite. They include names they didn't need to to make a point. You'd never do this if this was legend. You'd always try to make somebody look better than they are. This does the opposite. For instance, let me give you some examples. In Jesus' genealogy that Luke and Matthew record, and this is all in context with why he shows up to the shepherds. It's just typical of Jesus. It's just what he does. He goes to those who think, he goes to those that society thinks should be discarded. He goes right to them. And so in Jesus' genealogy, there are five women listed. You'd never list women in a genealogy in the first century because they're considered to be gender outsiders. And I keep telling you women, until Jesus came along, there was no gender equality. Nowhere in the ancient civilized world. Yes, the church blows it from time to time. It still doesn't get it right all the time. But you need to thank Jesus for equality. Moreover, there were racial outsiders. Gentiles, Canaanites, Moabites. And the people of Jesus' day considered all those, days, all those people to be unclean, and yet they're included in Jesus' genealogy. My favorite part, though, is how Matthew goes out of his way to include the dregs of society, according to the Jewish tradition. Tamar. Tamar. Do you know who she is? She tricked her uncle into sleeping with her. Sorry, her father-in-law, in sleeping with her, Judah. And then when the genealogy is recorded, Jesus is a descendant of Perez, not Zerah, but Matthew includes both names. Why? So that you'll know the whole story of Tamar and how she's included in Jesus' genealogy. What about Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute in Jericho included? And then in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. That's cool, man. All you got to do is say, David beget Solomon. That's all, that's all they do the rest of the time. So-and-so beget so-and-so. Here he says, oh, by the way, whose mother had been Uriah's wife? That's cold. What's he doing? He's not slamming Bathsheba. He's slamming David. David is the one who slept with Bathsheba while Uriah was out defending David's kingdom and then had Uriah killed to cover it up. And Matthew says, hey, how about this story? Why would you do that? This is mesmerizing. 
Incest, adulterous, murderers, prostitutes, moral outsiders, racial outsiders, gender outsiders, all in Matthew's genealogies, none of them are purged. All were excluded by the law of Moses. Why did Matthew and Luke put them in? To show you that those people everybody else excludes, Jesus brings in. You with me? That Jesus brings in, that nobody's too far gone. Now, this is the best part of this. And we kind of been working our way up to this. And I got about 12 minutes. Do not turn around and look at the clock. I got about 12 minutes. I got to do this quickly. Jesus came to show us what God is really up to. Intimacy. Jesus came to give us advice. No, he came to give us good news. And he came to show us that we're all invited in, but this is the best part. Please follow me here. Now, I've dealt with this before on a minute level. I want to dig into it. And I got to talk really fast because it's too good. It's too good to leave behind. Look at how Luke starts the narrative of the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter two. Now move up to verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria and everyone went to their own town to register. Now, okay. Notice what you do not see in Luke one. You do not see the words once upon a time in a land far, far away. Why? Matthew and Luke both want you to know immediately that Jesus is grounded in history. In Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. How many of you can remember your first date? Seriously. I had my first date at 13 years old. Now, if you're 13 right now, do not go home and tell your parents, Pastor Jeff had his first date at 13, so I can too. It's a different world and a different place. There's somebody who knows men. So we, I took my first date to the Bonnie Kate Theater. Don't ask. We saw a movie called Star Wars. It was 1977. And the coolest thing happened, there was this scroll that started scrolling out. It was like super effects at the time. And it started with a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. What this actually means, this is synonymous to once upon a time. It means, well, we don't actually know when this happened. Uh, in fact, is, it probably didn't happen, but wouldn't it be cool if it did? That's what once upon a time means. Both Matthew and Luke say, no, 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 no. It's important. What you and I miss, first century writers and readers would have gotten. Think about Superman for a moment. Or think about any fantasy writing. Think about uh, Sleeping Beauty, Beauty and the Beast, Peter Pan, Thor, Aquaman, my personal favorite, because I'd always like to swim in the ocean without having to come up for air. Lord of the Rings. Do you know what all those have in common, right? They didn't actually happen. I've met people who actually ask me what part of the Bible are the Lord of the Rings in. They're not. It's fantasy. It didn't happen. It's a cool story, but it didn't happen. Much to the dismay of common day, modern day philosophers, they hate this idea because they can't understand why 99.9% of human beings are drawn to this type of thing. You have a good guy, you have a bad guy, somebody comes in to save the day. Over and over and over, and Hollywood keeps churning out those movies like that. You and I are paying the same buck for the same theme every time we go to the movie. Bad guy, good guy. Bad guy hits, good guy. But Savior comes in to save the day. It's the same story over and over. As a matter of fact, Anthony Lane, who writes for The New Yorker, this was his uh, review of the Lord of the Rings, the book, when it came out. He said, it's a book that bristles with bravado, yet to give into it, to cave into it, as most of us did on first reading, betrays a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. Now, I want to read that again. You got to get this. Here's what he says. It is a book that bristles with bravado, big. It's large, yet to give into it, 
to cave into it, as most of us did on the first reading, betrays a reluctance to face the finer shades of life that verges on the cowardly. What's he saying? He's saying this. If you like Lord of the Rings, it's because you are a coward. If you like fantasy, Sleeping Beauty, Fairyland, Fairy Stories, Beauty and the Beast, Peter Pan, Superman, Thor, Lord of the Rings, if you like them, it's because you're a coward and you don't want to deal with real life. The problem is that he admits 99.9% of the world love it. Are we all cowards? Here's the point. These stories are not factually true, but we're still drawn to them. But when Anthony Lane is asked about the origin of the human longing, when he's asked, why is it that there seems to be a set of longings in the human heart that realistic fiction can never satisfy? Why is it that deep in the human heart is the desire to escape death, to fly, to be Superman, to to engage in a love that never parts or fades, to be woken up from an eternal sleep by a handsome prince, to communicate with animals and angels, to triumph over all evil. Why is it, Anthony Lane, that 99.9% of people in the world are drawn to that thing? No answer, no answer. Because the answer is too difficult. You know, folks, I did fly once. I did. Brad Tucker built me a flying fox. If you've been here six, seven years, you'll remember this. I actually flew from right up there in the corner to the end of the state. There's a wire. And I came in on a Sunday morning right when it was time to preach. Everybody was looking for me. They couldn't find me. And then the lights went down and a spotlight came. I got a picture to prove it. And I had this Superman outfit on. I flew down. I came out and I took the stance. I loved it. I mean, what man does not like Superman? Think about it. What man does not want to be invincible? Have x-ray vision. I'm just saying, (laughs) have good hearing, have good hearing and save the world. But think about Superman. Now stay with me. Think about Superman for a moment. He comes from another world. He has miraculous powers. He desires to save the planet. His enemy uses his strength, his love for the humans against him. His enemy seems to kill him, but he comes back from the dead. Does that sound familiar? Yes. What's the point? The best stories we know the most moving stories, the most satisfying stories, they point to a reality beyond themselves. Stay with me. What if you went to Thor? What if you went to the movie? I liked Thor. I liked the movie. What if somebody in the movie comes down and drops the hammer on Thor and Asgard is lost and you've got to walk out of the movie theater? What are you going to be doing? I want my money back. What if Sleeping Beauty has no prince to wake her up from the eternal sleep and she just keeps sleeping? You know, you're going to see Sleeping Beauty part two, still sleeping. No, the prince doesn't find Cinderella's slipper. So she's resigned to live a life of hard labor, envy, jealousy, and hate. And what about Superman? What if he's destroyed by kryptonite and the planet perishes under the rule of an evil sorcerer? You're going to walk out of the movie and you're going to think, man, I'm not going to see Superman too, am I? Superman dies again. You know, you're not going to do that. Even though we know the stories did not actually happen, there's something inside us that knows there's good and evil, that there is a battle going on, that there really is such a thing as truth and justice, that there is a sorcerer of sorts trying to wreak havoc on our lives, that we're really not meant to die, and we really do need to defeat death. Here's the point. That's why when humanity sees and hears and reads those stories, we know we're not dumb. We know the stories aren't true, but we suspect that the underlying realities to which the stories point are true. And Anthony Lane would say, 
wait a minute. No, that's cowardly to let your heart move to something that is beyond the rational. But how do you explain the rationale that 99.9% of us have something, listen, stirring within us that knows there's something about these stories that point to something that is real. Listen, the reason you hunger for food is because food exists. The reason you thirst for water is because water exists. The reason you yearn for intimacy and love is because intimacy and love exists. And the reason you yearn for the beyond is because heaven exists. The Bible says that he has placed eternity in the heart of every man and woman. There's something inside you that knows. You know that Jesus is not one more story pointing to an underlying reality that Jesus Christ is the underlying reality to which all the best stories point. And so what does he do? He's got this idea that there's the ideal, the way we know the world should be. And then there's the real where we live. And when Jesus comes down through this introduction of the New Testament narrative, there's this this ideal world, and Jesus crashes a hole through the concrete slab that separates the two, and he comes from the ideal, and he brings the ideal into the real. And when he does, and we see it, guess what we do? We say to ourselves, that's the way it ought to be. So what does Jesus do? He heals the sick, the lame walk, the blind see. Those who are paralyzed pick up their mat and begin to walk. And what do we say? We look at it, and we like it. Why do we like it? Because we know, hey, That's the way it ought to be. And in our hearts, somewhere, somehow, down deep inside, we know that sometime, somewhere, somehow, this is a reality. That's why you're drawn to it. We are pulled toward the complete restoration. We know the fantasy stories aren't real, but we know the underlying realities to which they point are real, and they are real in the person, the God-man, Jesus Christ. Now, stay with me. I'm almost done. You know there's ultimate good and evil. You know that a noble prince has come. You know that a savior has come. You know there is a love that will never die. You know that one day you're going to fly. I don't know how it works. You know one day you're going to defeat death. It's in you. And you also know that the world was created by God and that one day the trees are going to dance. It's going to happen. The ideal is going to come into the real. Now listen, I buried my friend Izzy on Monday. This place was packed. And right here on the front row, Izzy's two sons, Christopher and Jeshua. And I was seated over here with a couple of guys who were going to speak. We started to sing. And Izzy wanted to make sure that we did not mourn his passing, that we celebrated his promotion. Okay? And I think as we started singing the songs, they were very much upbeat, not your typical funeral music. And I noticed the two boys were really struggling. So I walked over and I said to Jeshua and Christopher, I said, Gus, I know that you're sad because you're your, your father. And remember, that was a slip of the tongue. But the reality is these kids have lost both their mother and their father in three years. I walked over to them. I said, look, I know you're sad and we're sad too. But the reason you see us rejoicing is because your father wanted us to. Because where he is is the place we all want to be. And there's no more suffering And so if you think that we're happy because he's gone, no, we're just happy because he's gotten his promotion. He's where we're all going to be someday. Now, during the message, I noticed the two boys listening, but I felt I wasn't getting through. And I want to know, as I preached the funeral, I didn't even talk to anybody else in the room. I looked right at them and I preached my message to those two guys. That's what I wish would have happened when my mom died that a pastor would not have avoided the big questions, that he would have tried to address the issues that I was facing as as a young man. So I said, man, I'm not going to do that to these boys. I'm talking to these boys. I told them it's okay to be angry with God. Be angry with God. Just run to him, not from him. 
God can handle your anger. Be angry and you tell him what you're feeling. That's the only way you're going to get answers to your questions. And I didn't know if I was getting through until I talked about C.S. Lewis and the Chronicles of Narnia. And all of a sudden, here we go with the fantasy again, to which would be a beautiful, beautiful point of reference for what actually happens, the reality, the ideal becoming real. And those two boys lifted their heads, and I want to share with you what I said to them. C.S. Lewis, on those last pages of the Chronicles of Narnia, he says, when we lose somebody, they die, that we loved. For us, it is the end of their story, for now. But he goes on to say, but for them, it's only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. And then he says, now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. And I saw those two boys just kind of lift their heads and smile. And I thought, yeah, once again, C.S. Lewis, the fantasy world. Because we know that even though the fantasy worlds of the Lord of the Rings may not be true, the underlying realities to which they point are. And they knew it, and so did everybody else. Where are you? Where are you? So I don't know, Pastor Jeff, can you help me? Yes, yes. If you understand this New Testament narrative as the story begins in the New Testament, that tells me that you understand grace, and you're no longer trying to achieve or close the gap by your own efforts that you've accepted the cross as payment for past, present, and future sin, and you are a joyful person now. And when you come into this place, you're joyful, and you're joyful because you know what needed to be done has been done, and there's no greater task. And everything that you do now is out of appreciation and gratitude for what's been provided, and there's in you a desire to meet the God and to be intimate with the God who would do that for you, who would humble himself. Is that you? Are you in relationship with God or are you just in proximity? And do you believe that no one is too far gone? You look at Jesus making the announcement through the angel to the shepherds and those who we've written off, God has brought in. Do you really believe that you're no better than anybody else? I hope so. You're saved by grace, but the reality is there's nobody too far gone that God can't reach down. Transform them in the twinkling of an eye. Do you believe that by his stripes we are healed, that by his death we will live forever, that one day all oppression will cease, that every captive will be released. And do you believe that the kingdom God came to bring, that Jesus has already broken through the concrete slab that separates the ideal from the real and has showed you it's possible to live in it now? Now. And when people look at your life, do they say about you, wow, that's the way life ought to be? If so, You've got intimacy, not just proximity. And that's what the birth narrative ultimately is about. Father, I thank you and I praise you. Uh, I ask that our eyes would be opened more clearly. I pray that somehow in the midst of all this, we'd be able to celebrate uh, even a life like Izzy, even though we miss him and we love him, that we'd celebrate his promotion. And now the real story and the first chapter of the real stories being written, and every chapter is better than the one before. We pray a special prayer for Jeshua and Christopher, uh, that you would uh, make yourself known to them in this time as they run to you in their anger, that you would comfort them. We pray for our church, forgive us where we've been in proximity and failed to enter into relationship. And Father, right now as we stand in this place and we sing, 
And we remind ourselves that by his stripes we have been healed. That there has been the release of the captives. That all who want to live a life in Christ Jesus, all who call on his name shall live not only forevermore, but in the now. That the kingdom of God can become a present reality in our lives here, right now, as we live for the world that is yet to come. Help us again to pursue intimacy with you as the primary passion of our life in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Finds. Next time, we'll bring you a new message from Pastor Jeff. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Finds wherever you listen to podcasts. You make me Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.